I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. I am so grateful to have Ruby Sales here with me today, who is a long-distance runner for justice. Uh, so much more, but we'll get into we'll get into that. But that was how she preferred I introduce her. Um, Ruby Sales is someone that I've been following and um, absolutely mesmerized by every word that comes out of her mouth. So for anyone listening, you don't don't multitask because you're going to need to hear everything. If you you move your attention for five seconds, you're going to miss the pearl of of wisdom. Um, so Ruby, thank you so much for for joining me today. Bill, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really a pleasure. I'm so, I've, I, this is a podcast, but I'm beaming and I'm just like pinching myself with excitement. Um, so I, I, I watched um, a, a summit you were in, the Citizen Well Summit, and you were talking about um, Trump as our shadow and explaining that the, how people, um, must hate themselves so much to see themselves represented in him. I do shadow work on my own and I teach about it. So I have a, an understanding of what you mean, but I wonder if you could go into that a little bit more. And I'd also love to talk about the way forward from that and, and what you mean by radical self-love. Well, I think that we need to really interrogate the whole meaning of white privilege. And what I'd like for us to think about, ask a fundamental question. Is it a privilege to be stripped bare of all of your multiple identities and only have skin as a single identity from which you move? Hmm. What does it mean to kill one's gender self, one's racial ethnic selves, one's class selves? What does it mean to commit soul murder and to hate those parts of yourself that, that, that is more than just your skin color. And I, so I don't think it's a privilege to have anyone make you commit soul murders and become a stranger to yourself. Hmm. I think that it's true. And so that the question is, is that when you have no self and you identify totally with whiteness, white skin, nationalism, then it means that you eradicate your ethnic history. It means that you, believe that you are part of people who for centuries, all the way back to Europe, violated you in terms, violated European, average Europeans based on class. And to identify with people who've been the parents of your pain, who were responsible for why immigrants from Europe came to this country to escape that brutality, to become one with those people and to identify with those people and then turn around and worship at their altar to the extent that you would kill yourself, show it without a mask in a crowded place when you know that, that that will ultimately not only harm you, but harm others. That's what I mean. So I think that whiteness, contrary to the perception, is not a privilege, it's a soul murder. 
and it does not predicate itself on self-love. It predicates itself on hating everything about yourself that's not white and killing all parts of yourself. So can you talk a little bit about the shadow and, and, and what you said about Trump being the white people's shadow and, uh, and, and how they see themselves reflected in him? Because that concept to me, just so many light bulbs went off when I heard you talking about that. I think that Donald Trump, see what white supremacy does, a white skin nationalism, is that it teaches us to demonize and other people. And so with, in terms of white supremacy, there's a tendency for white people to absorb themselves of the responsibility of their choice to engage in white supremacy and demonize and blame one person. In the history of this country tells a different story. It tells the story of the genocide of Native American people in the name of white supremacy and Christian imperialism, which goes hand in hand with white with white supremacy. It tells a story of enslavement. So it's a way of discharging responsibility and placing it on one person. And basically, Donald Trump represents a stream that has flown in American society all the way back to the doctrine of discovery and the encounter and European encounters with Native American people in this country. And so it is, it is from, from I say that, that many that Europeans are socialized in the cultural whiteness from the womb to the tomb. Um, and, and let me just say something. It's really important to understand that the shadow, the shadow marks, you're constantly in the shadow, you're constantly marked by, followed by that shadow. The shadow never leaves because we don't rise above our culture. I don't rise above the culture of whiteness. I internalize whiteness. Maybe it's not in terms of racism, but I might internalize it in terms of classism. I might internalize it in terms of heterosexism. None of us are above the culture that we live in. We all bear the marks of whiteness. So how do we, because there's no, there's no worthy inquiry. It's not like people, and, and, and we all have it. So obviously I have it too. And well-intending liberal, white liberal people very much have it. Um, but how do we, there's people who are like looking to be better and there's people who are not looking to be better. How do we approach like, hey, you hate yourself and you've committed, like how do we, how do we? First of all, it's not about them hating themselves and we are all free of that hatred. We all internalize yeah. a false consciousness and a hatred of some parts of ourselves because that's the nature of white supremacy. What, what I think is important for, for European Americans is to claim that white American who they think, who they have contempt for and to recognize to them that's in that person and the person that's in them and to try to ask the fundamental question, what is beneath the screams of racism? What, is, what are the cries that people are uttering beneath the racism? And what is it and how is it that you can hold anybody, if black people and Native American people can work with white people and to forgive them and find something human in them, why can't they find it in people whom they think uh, are racist, whom they think 
or do not follow an ideological line that they think is correct. Mm -hmm. It takes humility, it takes proportionality, it takes ability to do to, to, to see others as you would want people to see you and to understand that, that if it's really important to look at other cultures and to ask the question, how have Native Americans, how have Black people, how have Chicano Americans, how have we been able to stand in the same spaces with white people and give them utter respect and regard? If we can do that, surely white people can claim their white brethren and find a way of working with them and getting down to the bottom line of their pain and suffering. Can you talk a little bit more about their pain and suffering? What you mean by that? Yeah, I think it's the pain and suffering that I just said, it's a pain and suffering. It's a rage, it's a class rage yeah. in a society that promotes the notion that there is no class that all white people live the same lives. That a white person who lives in Appalachia is the same thing as Donald Trump or the same thing as a Rockefeller, or the same thing as a Jeff Bezos. Those are lies. And so when you tell people that and they believe it, then they identify, they, they basically kill themselves, the self that's different. They basically kill the class reality of themselves, of their families, of their ancestors. And so I so I think it's really important. That's what that's what must happen. That people must be able to claim all of their selves. And I think the rage comes from years of, 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 of resistance and misplaced anger against white rulers who have exploited ordinary white people. Look at what happened during the progressive era. The whole labor issues that were raised, labor movements, those were class movements. Those were movements of resistance against white ruling elites. And do you, how do you feel like that affected the relationship between like the, the classist um, internalization or, or, or uh, of, of white folks and black folks? Like, how, how do you feel like, you take that just a little bit further because I want to hear more what you're thinking. Well, I think that how white people have internalized that is a false consciousness mm -hmm. um, that, dis, that disassociates the reality from the illusion the truth from the lie. And I think that because white supremacy promotes the notion of white superiority and white perfection, mm -hmm. that when white people of course to work for racism, they always put their gaze on black people. How is it that I can humanize and verify black humanity rather than ask the question, how is it that I who comes from the community where the sight where racism begins, where racism is, is curated every day. How can I become fully human? How can I learn to live in a world where I'm not in such a small space, where I'm, where I'm afraid to live with people who, are, who look differently, who, who act differently? How can I move from the smallness of whiteness to the largest of, to the largest of universality? So I think that these are questions it's, it really means that you have to shift your gaze and begin to ask different kinds of questions yeah. and not think that rate, that the work for racism is something that you do for black or brown people. 
but to recognize that it's work that we all do for ourselves and then for each other. How do you approach people who don't express any interest in learning about that or in asking different questions or in changing what they've been so pulled into that soul murder and is there a way to engage those people, do you think? Or um, or is it just kind I of- I think that you engage people by meeting them and talking to them eye to eye and developing relationships. I think it is in community that we begin to know that each other is in community that we experience the intimacy of trust. It is in community where change occurs. And so I think that we have to begin to think of ways to rebuild a community that, uh, that deviates from the fragmentation that is at the heart of white supremacy. White supremacy builds itself on fragmentation mm. and a lack of intimacy. Because if we know somebody, really know them in a very intimate kind of way, it's hard to do the same things to people who that, uh, that you know than uh, uh, rather people whom you don't know. Yeah. I love that community. Um, you mentioned radical self-love. Um, can you talk more about that and how that differs from the love and light of spiritual bypassing? So what, what exactly does radical self-love look like to you? First of all, radical self-love means the commitment to becoming whole, mm. the commitment to to claiming all of ourselves and integrating all of ourselves into one whole. Radical self-love means, and that means seeing the possibility in ourselves that is diminished from the time that we are entering into the world where we are socialized into being small. And so, and so it's really important that we claim that self. It is important that we see the possibility and the good in ourselves that we've been told that does not exist. And, and radical self-love means that once you begin to identify that good in yourself, that you also begin to see the good in others. And just as we call ourselves to our highest possibility and our highest level of consciousness, radical love means that we expect that of others, that we call each other to our highest selves in our highest possibilities and create, poss and create opportunities whereby we might practice that consciousness, create opportunities whereby we might ritualize that expectation and that level of, 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 of love. What are some ways that you ritualize that? How, how, what are some ways that you've, you've called people uh, called people in and, and helped elevate people. I think I do that by just telling people the truth mm. and not writing people off. I don't think, and, and, and really believing that none of us are condemned to bad history, that, that we all have the possibility to exit bad history and to create a new story. And so the question is, how is it that you call people to a new story? You certainly don't do that by being self-righteous and dismissive. Yeah. You try to find the part, the point in each person where the hurt lies and to speak to that hurt. Now, that doesn't mean that I tolerate 
racism. It doesn't mean that I tolerate sexism. It doesn't mean that I tolerate heterosexism, but what it does mean is that I approach it with a tender heartedness because I recognize that I too possess some of the same isms that I'm calling out on other people. I love that, like one finger's pointing out, but there's three fingers pointing back and being able to do that self-examination, I think is so, is so important. Um, how do you, how do you hold yourself accountable? I think, well, it's, we're, we're not individuals. We are also part of a community. That's my phone, I'm sorry. We're also part of a community. And I think that it is in community that we're held accountable. But we see in an individualistic society, there is no social norms. There are no uh, community uh, talk back to community. There's no call and response. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about how I hold myself accountable, but how the community is so organized that it holds me accountable. It's not just about either person. It's about we, the community, working in harmony with because I hold the community accountable as much as the community holds me accountable. So yeah. it's a harmony. We're harmonizing accountability. What is your community? Do you have several different definitions of that, like smaller and bigger, bigger, bigger? What do you consider to be your community? All of who I am as a person, and but those communities are not opposed to each other. They're all part of a whole. Yeah. So I'm a Black female, Black woman. Southern Black woman. So I have many communities that form a whole that are not in opposition to each other. But my primary community has to do with being an African-American, which determines all how my other identities are lived out and, and received in a, in a white supremacist society. Yeah. Um, so that, that intersectionality, I think, is is important for people to, to recognize. Can you speak a little bit about that? Because it sounds like for you, you're saying that your identity as an African-American, that kind of guides how, you're, how you are in the world and your other identities. Can you, can you talk a little bit about well, that? Well, yes. I mean, it's really, when I go out in the world, I'm seen as, an Af as a Black woman, actually. And what I call, say I'm a same gender loving Black woman, what I say I'm an older Black woman, whether I say I'm, I'm, I'm middle class, all of those identities are influenced by my Black, about this, the marks of Blackness, the stigma of Blackness. Mm -hmm. And also not only the stigma, but how my people made, what, what my people have made of our lives. I am very much identified with the history of Black people in struggle and how we the genius of Black struggle in this country, the ability of a people who the most genius to not only survive but thrive, who did not become broken-winged birds. That's, that's, that forms all of my identity. So it's not just what white Americans have tried to make of Black lives, but it's also identify with what my people made of our lives. That's so, that's so beautiful. Um, I'm, I find myself. Let me like, just say. Let me just say that the the irony, the tragedy of this, is that every ethnic group has my story, because every ethnic group has stood outside of the gates of power. Yeah. 
And every ethnic group has developed modalities, whether it's through the arts, whether it's through spirituality, in terms of resistance, struggle, and reaffirmation of their humanities. The problem is, is that European Americans give up all of that history to identify with the official history of rich white men. And they give up all of that for the emptiness of whiteness, but it does not mean that it's not a, it does not abide in a collective consciousness. So the question is, what is the journey back to that collective consciousness for white Americans so that they hear their Celtic grandmama screams, so that they hear the beautiful lyrics of, 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 of an Irish crooner, where they understand how the struggle of Irish British colonialism, where they began to identify what did it mean to be hounded as an English person under King Henry VIII and the Mary Queen of Scots. All of those things are there. What did it mean to be victims of the bubonic plague in, in, in Europe? All And how did ordinary people survive the stench of the ghettos and the slums that Dickens talks about? These are and so that embedded in those stories is not only a question of suffering, but it's a question of a victorious people who survived with their humanities, who did not become broken winged birds. That story never gets told because what gets told is a story of conquest, greed, materialism, enslavement. And that's the story that white people buy in order to become white. I'm thinking about my own Jewish identity, which I grew up being proud of, but I, I find myself having a very difficult time connecting with organized religion, um, the way it's played out in the world, and that there's an exclusivity about it um, that I don't love. And I found myself always looking for God when I was younger, like, when am I going to start believing in God? When And I didn't find it in that in that identity, uh, in that religion, um, and was found it later as I started meditating and getting more of a sense of a more universal nature God uh, consciousness. Um, so it's just interesting, like what am See, I- See, I think that, yes, I think that there is a tendency, but that's just one part of the story. There's another part of Judaism that's deeply meditative and that's the mountaintop consciousness. Uh, and that's, that's a higher level of consciousness. And so I think that there's no perfect religion yeah. because people are not perfect. But the question is, there are so many glorious moments. It's not just about religion. It's about the inner life, the consciousness of a people. It's not about the institutionalization of that consciousness. It's mm -hmm. about the lived inner life of that consciousness. And I find that in this story, there's so many high points. There's so many moments of of valor, there's so much struggle, there's so much dignity, and one has to find a way to navigate, like I do with Black folk religion. There are many points in Black folk religion that I disagree with, but I also find the points that I that I find that are reflective of the highest level of, of, of humanity that's embodied in Black folk theology. And I don't expect any people to be perfect because we are constant constantly in process and that there's no such thing as perfectness. There's no such thing as a people being perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And nor should there be, I guess, you know, because that's gonna 
mean different things to different people. Um, so gonna, why is it that you reduce the, the Jewish experience to religion and not spirituality? I never felt it. I never um, experienced it as spirituality. It was culture and that I still connect to like, like the, the holidays and the family meals and feasting together and that I like, but um, I, I feel like there's an exclusivity within that. But I, I, I hear what you're saying and I think I'm gonna actually have to go back through and listen to this interview several more times to, to fully, it, but you're awakening some emotions in me. So this is really um, what you're saying. I, I don't even think I've processed all the layers of it. Um, but I never felt spiritual, but I never felt connected to anything higher. I felt connected to community, but then I also felt like that community didn't embrace anything outside of itself a lot um, that I didn't like. Does that make sense? Well, I, I think that we have to redefine spirituality and understand the difference between it and religion. Yeah. I think spirit is the soul of the people. It is, a, it is the, our inner and our outer lives. So when I talk about spirituality, I mean the journey, the many journeys that the Jewish people took, the culture of the people, the, the breath, the, what they, I can't breathe, the breath, the very breath of, of, the, of, of Jewish people, peoples, and what does that, and what does that mean? And so I think that that's a difference in performing spirituality I'm talking about the very souls of a people who survived all kinds of heinous crimes committed against them, but who not only survived, but made great contribution to the world. Who, and that, that's breath. That's the essence of a people. I love that so much. I'm trying, I'm like, <laughs> have a little personal religious therapy session with you here, Ruby. This is, I love it, I love it. Um, Wow. Um, I'm, I'm, and I'm thinking about, you know, like my great grandparents who I didn't know who all came from Russia and, um, and, and what their lives must have been through and the, the immigrant experience. We, we, we all landed in Canada. So that's where my family comes from is, is the Montreal area. But um, that, that's, I love that, that survival and the individual souls and, and that's, um, that consciousness, I feel like I can connect to that very powerfully. And um, what it must have meant to come to a whole new country where you didn't speak the language and the courage and the bravery and the faith that it took to begin all over again. Yeah. That's and, powerful. And the suffering that must have been happening to get them. Absolutely, to get them, right. And, and the, the, the refusal, the absolute refusal to give up and to give in. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so. That's the souls of the Jewish community. Yeah. And, and that's, that's there, no matter what other kind of exclusivity you find in that story, there's also issues, there, there, there are things there to counter that. And so the question is, I'm not saying, I don't believe in religion either, I don't, but I do believe in black folk theology, black folk spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking about through a trauma, a trauma informed assessment of, of what religions have become or, or something specifically Judaism, like the reaction to having been through what they've been through probably informs or does inform a lot of 
where things are now. And I, I, I certainly don't have like a gigantic problem with the religion. I just currently myself don't connect to it as much until this, this discussion. Um, well, I think that, let me just say something as a black person. One of the things that we have to work out that's really played, that's, that is revealed in Exodus is very important. I see it in black people. What does it mean to be, want to become like the very people who once enslaved you and who were the parents of your pain. Mm. That is the human dilemma that is universal, that's found in all people. It's not particular to Jews, it's not particular to Native Americans, it's not particular to Black people. But we find instances of that in all aspects of human history. In my own history, when people say, I want to be included at the table, my first question is, why would you want to be included at a corrupt table? Why won't we build our own, a different table? And so that we all have that, that universal contradiction. And so the question for us is to try to ask, what is that universal impulse that drives us to imagine freedom to be the right, to be like the very people who, who, who oppressed us? What do you think the answer is? I don't know. I've been struggling. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, tell me, tell me. I want to hear. I don't know. I don't know. I, I really, because I'm fascinated with it. Yeah. My own people, I'm fascinated with it. There's a, there's a, a prominent Black uh, academic who, a uh, man who's been speaking out against critical race theory and uh, against systemic racism from a point of, of authority theoretically, because he's a professor and a PhD and all that. Um, but, but speaking about it as a, a cult and that, you know, it, it feels to me like very internalized, internalized white supremacy culture in a, in a black man. And he's so very outspoken about it. And what are your thoughts on, on that when, when- I don't know that you have to tell me the person, you have to tell me the theory. I don't want to pontificate on something. Sure, John McWhorter is his name and he's a linguist. Um, and he's posted, he put an article in the Atlantic recently. Um, and I'm just, I'm trying to wrap my brain around it, but I'm, I'm I have to read what he's saying to get the nuances okay. of okay. what he's saying. I don't want to render an indictment against someone's work that I haven't read. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and or what are your thoughts just in general when, when, when black people or anyone who's not white, uh, who's, you know, oppressed in this country or marginalized denies the existence of systemic racism. I guess that's the more important question uh, that can be generalized, almost blaming those ethnicities or minorities or races for, for causing. I think that in every group of people, that's a universal condition that we just got to talking about. Yeah. It's internalization of oppression. Yeah. And that doesn't, Black people are not holy. We're not any different than any other human beings. Yeah. And so what you find in other ethnic groups, you also find in Black people. And yeah. so it should not be any louder condemnation. Because the point is, is that white people might not suffer the same kinds of assaults that Black people do. I think I've spent this whole time saying that, that, that white supremacy murders the souls of white people, yeah. but yet they identify with the very thing that murders them. That is a universal condition and it, it transcends all ethnic groups. And so the question is, 
what are our universal similarities and what are our particularities? And that in the 21st century, we must shift, we must expand our gaze to deal with the universal as well as the particularities and to not, and to, to really understand that there are common places that we meet as human beings that exist in every group is what, to be repetitive. Yeah. Women, are, what, what do you say about women who want to be men, hmm. who deny that misogyny exists? What do you say about LGBTQ people who deny that heterosexism exists? Do you get my point? Yeah. Why should Black people be any different? Yeah. We, all of those groups have been oppressed by white supremacists, misogynistic, heterosexist, Christian imperialist men. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, a, that's very helpful. Um, um, I read your recent blog post, Shifting Gears a Little Bit. Well, actually, no, I do want to talk about this. Okay, so when you and I, when I reached out to you in a like, Hail Mary, like, I have to reach out to this woman to see if she'll agree to speak with me because I will forever be so mad if I don't. Um, and you were like, I'm not an anti-racist. I don't like that term. And my whole, my, you know, my podcast is called Conscious Anti-Racism and, and the other work I've done, that, that word is in the title. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about, for, for listeners, because it's, it's so, and for me, it's so, it, it makes total sense, but I'd love to hear why you don't like that term and what you use instead, or how you describe it instead. First of all, anti is a replication of white supremacy that stands over and against something you can stand over and against something, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't say what you're for. It doesn't make a commitment to eradicating. It just says that I'm against something. So I, I believe that anti-racist continues to, to create a system in the name of eradicating racial justice that demonizes and, 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 and put the problem out there and not in here. Hmm. And so I think that I would like to say that I am for racial justice. Racial justice immediately says that I'm not only going to proclaim that I'm against it, but I'm also going to work to rearrange structures that, that are just, it's a statement about democratization. Anti-racism does not make a statement that says that I want to democratize. It says I'm against something, but it doesn't declare what you're for. And it continues the vitriolic, anti-antithetical anti, climate that is inherent in white supremacy. And only a white person, I think, would have come up and it began with anti-racist because they come from an anti-culture. And if, if you're not really careful, what you create will represent what you've been told unless you've had an inner life change, unless you've had a higher consciousness, unless you began to interrogate your assumptions and cleaning out the toxicity that is in you and not just in other people. So as a white woman doing work in this space and I work with a, uh, I have a, a partner who's a black woman. Let me ask you a question. Why do you say you're a white woman? Oh, I'm just curious. That's a good you question. You are a Jewish woman. Why do you claim whiteness? And if you claim whiteness, you can't claim the privileges and the rights without claiming the bad history. So are you willing as a Jewish woman 
to take on the history of lynching, to take on the history of enslavement, to take on the history of genocide? Are you willing to take on the history that does not belong to you? I believe that history does belong to me because I have skin that looks like this and I've been in this culture and I get privileges for it, but I don't. But, but, but I get privileges as a black woman who went to an Ivy League graduate school. And so that, that but does that mean I'm gonna take the privileges is one thing, rights are another thing, but that doesn't mean that you are the create, that you are the carriers and the originators of that system. And I find it very interesting that that's what we were talking about earlier. If I were a Jewish person, I would never say I'm white. I never want to take on the history of whiteness. I would say that I have white skin, but I'm, I'm ethnically a Jew. Yeah. Because you're not wasp, you're not wasp. Right. While whiteness is not a monolith, it's a configuration of different identities and ethnicities. Yeah. Yeah, but if I it, it's I feel like that's like people who travel abroad uh, in Europe who are American and use a, a Canadian flag instead because they don't want to be attributed as American. Like it's like if I say like I'm not white, I'm Jewish, then it's like am no, I no? You can say I'm European American. Yeah, you can say I'm European American. There are many ways to call yourself, but yeah. white is loaded with the whole history. White is loaded with a a relation with relationships and structure. It is not a vacuous term. And when you say you're white, you just can't assume the rights and the privileges of whiteness. You must take on all of the bad as well as the good history. I think I'm hearing everything you're saying, and I think that's what I'm trying to do is, is not say I am different, like I am a different kind of white person. I am a different. But you are a different kind of white person because all, that's my point. All white people are not the same. They don't live the same lives. They haven't had the same history. You have been outside of Christian imperialism as a community. So it doesn't mean that you haven't oppressed people. It doesn't, but it, does, it means that you have a, a different relationship with whiteness than someone who comes from England. Interesting. That's I, You're the first person I've ever heard talk about whiteness in that way or non-whiteness, I guess. And that... Yes, you are. You do have white skin, but that's not your identity. Your identity is a European American who who is Jewish. That's different. But yeah. to say you're white, white is about power. White is about skin nationalism. White is about the reduction of all white people into all European Americans into their skin color. And I don't believe that. Do you think people might use that as it erases the whole it erases the whole fact that prior to the Southern Freedom Movement and Lyndon Johnson's Civil Rights Bill, that Jewish people stood outside of the circle of Wasp America, that yeah. there were tokens, that they couldn't that they couldn't live in certain neighborhoods. All of that history gets erased. And when you say that you're white, you then blend your history with that history. And all of that struggle, all of the ways in which people worked in the new deals to try to change America. All of that history gets lost. You and, you, and you create a false construct of being just like the people who did not, who, who were anti-Semitic when Jews came to this country, who were anti-Semitic during World War II. All of that history that turned the ship back from Cuba, who tried to come into this country, all of that history gets lost. Yeah. How do people with 
non-English white descendant, you know, how, how would you apply? I'm an African-American. How would you apply? I'm a Ghanaian American, a Ghanaian American, a Jamaican American, because we must have our ethnicities because in our ethnicities, it's not only our stories with each other, but it's our stories with our ancestors. And the minute I say I'm a black American and make myself a monolith, I have erased the voice of my grandmother, Ola Free Sales, and I have conflated her story with, with this monolith that has no meaning except the color of our skins. How? I know this is pretty. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it's 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 blowing my mind. As every, I mean, every sentence that you say, word that you say, blows my mind. But I'm I'm worried that people are going to be like, oh, I'm not racist. I'm Jewish. That's not what I said. I did not say. I said, let me be clear. Yeah. We all bear the marks of whiteness. Yeah. In other words, whiteness has infiltrated and infected all of our consciousness. The culture of whiteness. I did not say that people are not racist. I said that there's a difference between being socialized into a culture, which is not a person, it's a culture, mm -hmm. than to say that you are a Jewish American. So the question as a Jewish American, what I would ask is how have I, as a Jewish American, been influenced by a culture of whiteness? In the same way that I asked the question, how might I, as a Black American, been influenced by the culture of whiteness. Okay. As an African American, let me just say. Yeah, that really clarifies things. And and yeah, helps me understand because I I I like was hearing everything you're saying and then I'm thinking about other people who would be like, oh well I'm off get out of jail free card. No, but that's not what I said. I said <laughs> right. that yeah. I said that the culture is all pervasive. Yeah. And that we internalize the whiteness because it, we internalize it because it makes us erase all of our multiple identities mm -hmm. and reduce us to simple whites or black skin nationalism or yeah. blacks the color of our skins. And I'm saying that none of us stands above that reduction. None of us stands above having been internalized, having internalized that culture. That is not, it's not an either or. And even as we say that, there is European Americans are not a monolith. They have ethnicities. Mm -hmm. And each eth ethnicity bring their universal as well as their particular story. So I'm saying that as a Jewish American, you bring your own particular story as well as the universal story of being an American. Yeah. That am I silent because I want to just sit with that and I'm going to, this is, that that really explains so much and I'm, I'm just in my mind thinking of how that would change the way I feel in the world and interact in the world and, and reclaim parts of myself that I think I've, that's what you're saying about whiteness. I mean, that's exactly it, like giving away parts of yourself to identify with something, even if it's not. Even if you haven't committed the crimes, you do the time. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. All right. This is great. I had no idea we were going to go here. And this is amazing. <laughs> I was reading your last blog post um, about the notion of the war on COVID versus it being a humanitarian crisis. Um, and if it's okay, I'd love to just like read a, a few of the sentences and then yes. comment on it. 
So you said that war promotes and demands that we accept the idea that some people are collateral damage or disposable waste whose suffering and death are essential for a long-term victory and that it requires human sacrifice. A, a humanitarian crisis, um, saving lives drives our mission and approaches to addressing and ending a crisis. And there was more to it, but those were the, the parts that I had written down. Um, can you talk about that? Because it's such a... It flips it all on its end, uh, the way I think we've been approaching it. Can you can you talk about that? Yes, I think that when we say that we're at war with something that creates a contentious over and against environment, where you start out with the assumption that winning means that you're going to have carnage and people will be collateral. Mm -hmm. And that the mission is not to save lives, but it's to kill lives to win. And when you have an event, and that, that is so much in line with American uh, history and American ideology of, of that's, that's always driven by death and destruction. Mm -hmm. That America, that, that the culture of whiteness, as I've tried to say throughout this conversation, thrives on a death culture, the killing of identities, the killing of our humanity, the killing of our relationships with each other. And so that, that is the approach that 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 white rule is a place on fighting COVID COVID nineteen. They see it as a war, um, but it really is about it's a humanitarian crisis where we our mission is to save lives. Our mission is to help each other. Our mission is not to see each other's enemies. Our mission is not to use our resources to kill but to use our resources to save lives and to build community and supposed to destroy communities. And so I'm saying that we must, how we see this pandemic has a lot to do with how we, where we stand and how we imagine ourselves within a culture of whiteness. And I keep saying culture. You notice I don't say people, I say culture because it is the culture and not the individual that we're trying to change. If we change the culture, then we change people. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm even seeing that amongst people who are mask wearers. Like, it's like holier than thou, like who can be like getting mad at each other for like the risk that, the, you know, if you're, if you're choosing to go into a store or you're eating at a restaurant or you're, you know, like people using that against each other, but we're all on the same Side, but it feels like it. yes but I do think that there's something so self-aiding and so that comes out of the meanness and the individualism and that's a whole other conversation because it has to do with the, the depersonalization of human suffering in a capitalist technocracy where very few lives matter and Black lives matter, least of all lives, and Native American lives matter, least of all lives. And so I think that this disregard for each other's suffering is not by accident. Mm -hmm. It comes out of a technocracy where, where human memory is no longer involved, where human consciousness does not come from our relationships with each other, but it is contained in a computer that are computer becomes a repository of human memory and therefore human suffering is, is abstract. So I think that that's something that we've got to look at, that we've got to ask a fundamental question. 
how has technocracy, not technology, but the system of that, that includes technology, how has technocracy changed the development of human beings and our relationship with each other? Yeah. And how has it enhanced the whole question of who's disposable and who isn't disposable? And it is not by accident that angry white men between the ages of 25 to 35 are out there raging. They're raging because in technology, only the 1% matters. And white men in the currency of whiteness has shriveled and it doesn't carry the same value as it once did. And so what you're hearing is the howling of displacement and not having the answers that, that talk about and explains the displacement and people manipulating that sense of displacement for their own purpose. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm thinking just, you know, if people claimed other parts of themselves, they wouldn't feel as personally assaulted when other groups have more power because they're not clinging to the whiteness as their only identity. Is that, am I, am I following? Well, they would ask the question, hell, this is what I'm feeling. I'm going through the reality that 30% of global white men owns 95% of the global wealth mm -hmm. and the rest of us, the 70% of us are forced to share only 5%. So that is a society of scarcity. That's yeah. a society of lack, a society of non-accessibility. And it's a society where young black, young black, white, and brown bodies are surplus that's used as products with student loans that where they are further exploited mm -hmm. for the coffers of the rich and that they have no future in a society where five percent where seventy percent of us have access to only five percent of the world's resources. Those are real numbers that have and so of course these white boys are gonna these young white men are going to feel displaced. But who's out there giving them the ideological, the spiritual explanation and acknowledging that we are all less valuable than we once were in an industrial society where we are part of the production and that we were not surplus labor mm -hmm. as we are today where machines are doing the labor that human beings once did. And what is the correlation between the lack of manufacturing in this country and the rise of a technocracy and the cheap and is taking labor out of this country to seek cheaper markets. Those, those, there are reasons for that. But if you don't develop a popular education that tells and explains to people that engages them in a conversation about the meaning of their condition, people are gonna act out in very destructive ways. Um, okay, well, I know you didn't ask for all of that. Did you? I want everything. <laughs> I want to hear everything you have to say, and I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up because I know you have something to do at one, and I I want to talk to you all day, but I will respect your boundaries. Not that you need me to. You can respect your own boundaries, but I'm just I want to um, make sure people have a chance to learn more about how they can follow you. Um, you have a a nonprofit, the um, Spirit House, Spirit House Project. So can you talk? How, it's basically, it was founded when I went to divinity school and I did not want to be an ordained minister. Mm -hmm. So I tried to figure out a way in which I could combine spirituality with social justice work. And so the Spirit House Project is now both of that. 
And so we're a national nonprofit that uses research, action, the arts, spiritual maturity, and education to build up a racial, gender, and economic just society. And you can reach us at www.spirithouseproject.org. Or you can find me on Instagram, or you can find me at uh, on Facebook, Ruby Sales, on my front porch. That's that's what it's called, Ruby Sales yes, on my front porch. From my front porch. Okay, okay. Yeah, I heard Kelly and all of the women in the in the um, in the summit talking about you know being on Mama Ruby's porch, and I'm like, I want to be there. I want to hear what she has to say all the time. Um, so, so, okay. And so people can make donations to Spirit House? Yes, they can make donations to the Spirit House Project. We are a 501c3. Okay. So they can get tax deductions. Amazing. Any, any one last pearl that you want to share with people before I uh, hit the stop record button? Yes. I just like to say that we must root our work for racial justice, economic justice, in the question of how is it that we develop a practice, a praxis that raises people up from being unessential to essential to each other and to the project of democracy in a world where our lives are less significant and less vital. And how is it that we might begin to talk to each other in ways that, that, that heal and connect us to our common as well as our different spaces that we stand. Mm -hmm. Okay, well on that, thank you so much, um, Ruby Sales, a long distance runner for justice, but obviously so, so, so much more. Um, thank you a million times over for, for joining me and, and, and for um, being willing to engage in this conversation with this random uh, European American, Jewish American who reached out to you. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Thank you. Okay. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.